Leviticus 8. The Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron and his sons, their garments, the anointing oil, the bull for the sin offering, the two rams and the basket containing bread without yeast, and gather the entire assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the assembly gathered at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Moses said to the assembly, This is what the Lord has commanded to be done. Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons forward and washed them with water. He put the tunic on Aaron, tied the sash around him, clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him. He also tied the ephod to him by its skillfully woven waistband, so it was fastened on him. He placed the breastpiece on him and put the urim and thummim in the breastpiece. Then he placed the turban on Aaron's head and set the gold plate, the sacred diadem, on the front of it, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took the anointing oil and anointed the tabernacle and everything in it, and so consecrated them. He sprinkled some of the oil on the altar seven times, anointing the altar and all its utensils and the basin with its stand to consecrate them. He poured some of the anointing oil on Aaron's head and anointed him to consecrate him. Then he brought Aaron's sons forward, put tunics on them, tied sashes around them, and put headbands on them, as the Lord commanded Moses. Uh, When my youngest son, Ben, was in primary school, I was one of the lucky dads who got to go on the Canberra excursion. Not sure whether it's a kind of punishment for children just before they start high school, that they have to go down to Canberra. And one of the things they do on the Canberra excursion is they go and visit an old gold mining town called Old Baiwong Town. Now, hand over if you've you've been to Old Baiwong Town, okay? Right, a few people here have. Um, It was a gold rush town just outside of Canberra. And in the late 1800s, they found gold. Their people poured in. Hundreds, thousands of people were living there at one point. All of these houses were built. The gold mining equipment was all there. But then the gold ran out very quickly and people just abandoned the town. So it stands there today, still all of these old buildings from over a 100 years ago. And the kids get to go in there and see what life was like 130 years ago. And the kids just cannot relate to what they see there. I mean, there's no iPads, there's no air conditioning, no washing machines. They don't understand any of the things that they see. They don't understand how you could live like that. It's just completely beyond their comprehension. The thing that they love is they get to take a little bit of gold home with them. But it's just a remarkable thing seeing these kids wandering around in this place that is so foreign, so different to anything that they know. Now, I've got to say, Leviticus feels a lot like that, doesn't it? I mean, didn't you think that when you heard the Bible passage being read? Didn't you think, I have no idea what this is about. I, can't, I cannot relate to this in any way. That Aaron's supposed to get all of his gear that he's going to wear as high priest. He's supposed to bring a cow and two goats and some bread with him because there's a ceremony that's about to take place. I mean, it all sounds so foreign, anointing things with oil and people being set apart and consecrated in that way. This can seem like a very strange book to us, and indeed it is a very strange book. 
The, the role of the priest is probably the most foreign part of the book of Leviticus, the hardest thing for us to be able to get our head around. Now, the difficulty that we also have is that we still have people around today who call themselves priests. But the priests in Israel were very unlike anyone who might call themselves a priest today. And if a priest today thinks that they're fulfilling the same role as the Old Testament priests, well, they're totally wrong. And we'll see more about that a little bit later. Uh, The role of the priest was absolutely central to the life of Israel. One whole tribe, the Levites, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, were completely set apart to work in the tabernacle or the temple, what would become the temple. The word priest is used 149 times in the book of Leviticus alone. That's five times for every chapter that the word comes up. And it comes up for the first time in the fifth verse, but it's not until we get to chapter 8, where our reading came from this morning, that Leviticus wants to focus on the priesthood and particularly the setting aside of the high priest and those who will be working as priests in the tabernacle. This is where we see them consecrated or ordained or set apart for their role. Now, this wasn't some little private ceremony that was taking place. I don't know if you noticed, but when Moses was told to get Aaron and all of those things together, the whole community were to be there. The entire assembly, the whole of Israel were to come to the tent of meeting. Now, this is what the tent of meeting would have looked like. Someone's made a reconstruction of it and set it up in the desert in Israel, uh, showing what this thing would have looked like. It's around about the the size of a football field, uh, 50 metres long and 23 metres wide for those people who can understand those sorts of measurements. Uh, So it's not an enormous thing. It's about half the length of a football field. Um, But this is what it would have looked like. But could you imagine everybody's there, the people are gathered, hundreds, thousands of people are there. Some of them would have been inside that tent, that netted off area, watching what was taking place. The rest would have been standing outside, peering in, only guessing at what might have been taking place in there. Aaron and the others who were to be set apart as priests were ceremonially washed They had special clothes that were put on them, clothes that were in keeping with the role that that they had. And Aaron, being the high priest, was dressed the most elaborately. As best we can guess, and it really is only a guess from the descriptions that we have, this is what Aaron would have looked like when he was dressed in his gear. We're assuming that this is roughly what would have been taking place. But this is the outfit that he was to wear. Uh, We get a a detailed description of it from Exodus chapter 28. He has precious stones placed on each of his shoulders and the names of the 12 tribes of Israel are to be engraved on those two stones, six names of each tribe on each shoulder. And then on the front, he has this breastplate with another 12 precious stones in the front, one stone representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Do you see what this outfit's saying? See, this is not about him. This is about him representing the people. This is about him standing in the place of Israel. 
Uh, and the passage doesn't say it, but I wonder if the two stones, one on each shoulder, is that he is actually bearing the weight of Israel. He is taking Israel and representing them to God when he stands up in the tabernacle and in the temple. So Aaron is washed and he's dressed as the high priest. Now these robes, as expensive and ornate as they were, they're not actually about the priest. It doesn't make Aaron special. These robes are about God, the fact that God is special. The priest and his role is to stand between man and God, to to represent God to the people, but also to represent the people to God. And there's an incredibly fine line that this guy has to tread. Sure, he has a significant role to play, but there's a very real sense in in which he is just one of the people of Israel. He is one member of this community, one from among Israel. The ordination or the setting apart of the priests finishes with these words. Have I got it up on the screen? No, I haven't. Chapter 9, verse number 23, if you wanted to find it. Moses and Aaron then went into the tent of meeting. When they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. Fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw it, they shouted for joy and fell face down. As if to confirm in some way that this isn't just something Aaron and Moses have made up, this isn't something that they've come up with, God puts his stamp of approval on what's happening here. God's glory is revealed. Everybody gets to see that God is in this. And then fire comes from the presence of the Lord and consumes the burnt offering. Now, like I said, there's a fine line that this priest needs to tread. He's standing before God. He's standing there as a member of Israel, representing this community before God and representing God to this community. We looked at this briefly last week, but in Leviticus chapter 10, we see the priests crossing that fine line. Aaron's sons get carried away with their own importance and they feel that they can just barge into the tent of meeting anytime they like and make whatever offerings they like. And what happens to them? They're consumed by that same fire. They're destroyed. In their arrogance, they thought they could make whatever offerings they wanted to God. And God makes it abundantly clear he determines how people will relate to him, how they are to live as his people and how they are to come before him. Now, what absolutely dominated the life of the priest was making these sacrifices Every single day there were sacrifices to be made. Every day the priest and the people would be reminded of their covenant relationship with God. Every day the priest and the people had the opportunity to thank God for what it, for what it is that God has done for them, for his goodness to them. And every day they had the opportunity to confess to God that they've done the wrong thing. And they did that through offerings. Now, I grabbed a chart out of a Bible dictionary and it shows you just 
the basic sacrifices that would have been made throughout the course of the year. No special sacrifices. These are just the ones for the festivals and ordinary events that happen. So it shows you all of the different... The, the blocks are 10 groups of 10, just to sort of try and simplify the numbers. Small block is 1, big block is 10. So what we have is bullocks, rams, lambs, goats. This doesn't show the grain offerings or the bread offerings that would have been taken up to the temple. This is just the animal sacrifices that would have been made. Now, as I said, this just shows the regular routine sacrifices. If you sinned or if you became unclean, then there were more sacrifices on top of that that needed to be made. But every year, there would have been more than 1,200 animals being sacrificed, an average of three animals a day. See, we tend to look at priests in the Old Testament or even Aaron and think that, that it kind of all would have looked like this and possibly even sounded like this. But that's not what it would have looked and sounded like. Okay, It would have looked and sounded like an abattoir. I didn't want to put that one up. I thought that might be a bit graphic for the kids, so uh, we left that one out. But that's what it would have looked like, wouldn't it? I mean, imagine all of those sacrifices being made every day. If you saw someone walking in the street with a goat, you probably knew what was going on, that they were heading up to the temple to make a sacrifice because something had happened in their life, something for which they needed to make a sacrifice. Now, we said last week that the, the book of Leviticus is divided up into clear sections and there's two sections dealing with the priesthood. There's this section at the beginning, chapters 8 to 10, that deals with the priesthood and then you jump to chapters 21 and 22 and there's two more chapters there specifically related to the priesthood. And in those later chapters, we're told about how it is that the priests are to live that they are to live by a higher standard of morality and purity than the average Israelite because they would be symbolically coming into God's presence in their work, they needed to maintain a higher standard. There's a great example of, of what this would have looked like at the beginning of Leviticus chapter 21, if you've got your Bible there. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the priests, the sons of Aaron, and say to them, a priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die, except for a close relative, such as his mother or father, his son or daughter, his brother, or an unmarried sister who is dependent on him since she has no husband. For her, he might make himself unclean. Now, being unclean could happen in a whole variety of ways. One of those ways was coming in contact with a dead body. That would make you ceremonially unclean. But what this passage is saying is a priest isn't to do that for just anybody. There's nothing wrong with becoming ceremonially unclean. It's not sinful or wrong. In fact, it's inevitable that that's going to happen in your day-to-day life. But a priest was to avoid that as much as possible. So it's really just restricted to his close relatives that he will come in contact with those dead bodies when his mother or his father or a brother or a sister dies. It's important to understand, though, that being unclean in Israel isn't wrong or sinful. It's inevitable that it will happen, but priests need to take extra extra precautions. 
They need to limit becoming unclean because it stops them from fulfilling their role as priests. The priest, because he is symbolically dealing with God's people and meeting with God, needs to hold to a higher standard of purity and godliness in his life. Now, when we reach the pages of the New Testament, these things that seem so strange in the Old Testament, well, we realise that they're ultimately just a shadow of the reality that is to come. Uh, Things like the tabernacle, the sacrificial system, and also the priesthood. They're just a shadow of a reality that will come. As a kind of interesting summary of the priesthood from that bit that we read from from chapter 9 earlier, Moses and Aaron went into the tent of meeting and when they came out, they blessed the people and the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people. So it kind of summarises what the priest's role is, doesn't it? That he goes into this place where he meets with God and he comes out and God's glory is revealed to the people. So what we have is a priest who by way of sacrifice is able to enter into God's presence And as a result, God's glory is revealed and God's people are blessed. He's the one who represents God to the people and he's the one who represents the people to God. Can you see where this might be going? Can you see where this shadow points us? I mean, the Bible makes it incredibly clear, doesn't it, that Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is the one who does all of this not in symbolic ways as they were being done in the pages of the Old Testament, but in reality. He is the one who is God. He is the one who lived as a man. He is the one who attained that higher standard of living, that sinless life. He is the one who deals with our sin through his sacrifice. This is what it says in Hebrews. For this reason, he had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. What the Bible wants to make abundantly clear is that there are no priests today because we don't need a priest today because we have Jesus we don't need a priest who is a symbol of someone who can, who can bring us into the presence of God. We have Jesus. And if a priest today thinks that they can stand between you and God, then they're completely and utterly wrong. Worse than that, they're undermining what it is that Jesus has done. Jesus is the one who represents us to God. Jesus is the one who makes it possible for us to know God. Jesus is the one who enables us to pray, our Father in heaven. There is no person on this earth who can take that role. And calling yourself a priest doesn't make it so. There are those in churches that look like this who would claim that that is what they're doing, representing you to God through what they do. But there are also people in churches like this who think that they're doing the same thing. It's pretty common for churches today to have worship leaders or worship pastors. They're all in favour of good music in church, 
But I remember reading an article one time where a worship leader from England was talking about what his job was, what his role was, and he said that his job was to lead people into God's presence. Well, the Bible says that job's already been done. That job has been done by Jesus. And we better not have anyone else pretending that that's what they're doing. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, it's using this Old Testament covenant language, this Leviticus language. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, the place where the high priest could only go on one day of the year, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. We don't need anyone to lead us into God's presence because Jesus has made it possible for us to stand there with confidence. There are no priests today because we don't need them. Actually, that's not strictly true. The Bible wants to say that there are priests today. One of the things the Bible says is that every single person who has their faith in Jesus, they have the role of a priest, small p, priest. This is what Peter says. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Again, we've got this temple priesthood language here that's being used to describe us, a bunch of people meeting in the name of Jesus. And he goes on to say this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God that you may declare the praises of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light. The reformers had a term for this during the time of the Reformation. They called it the priesthood of all believers. There's no special class of people today who are priests to stand between you and God. Every single follower of Jesus, if you have your trust in Jesus, then you're a priest. Do you know how you're a priest? You have this incredible opportunity to represent God to people, to show people what God is like in the life that you live by declaring the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. As people who have come to know and trust in Jesus, you have that privilege. You don't have to stand up and preach a sermon. You don't even have to deliver a well-prepared presentation. You just have to be ready to do what Peter says a little bit further on in his letter. But in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord... Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. You just have to be ready, prepared to tell people the reason why you hope. What it is that you look forward to as someone who has their trust in Jesus. You are in the priesthood. 